out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. I'm sure we are. Thank you, Jim. Hello, welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Easter. I'm with you for the next 45, 50 minutes. As you know, we'd love to play the best in indie pop. We also love a good special guest. And this week, it is going to be the turn of Martin St. John, one-time member of Primal Scream. In fact, the tambourine player with the band. Um, And he did a book a few years ago, in fact, four years ago, called The Psychedelic Confessions of a Sprock of a Primal Screamer, which has come out on Lulu Publishing and is still available from all good bookshops and probably better online, in fact. Anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes, probably five minutes of um, the usual casual chat and getting to know each other, we got down to the interesting first part and only part of the interview where we were talking about the early days and how the band all came together. And this was Martin's response. Martin, it's over to you. Everything to do with Primal Scheme is probably in that book, but I've written really, you know, to do with the early days and, you know, the 83 to 87 period, actually, you know. So there's a lot of things in there you probably won't get in, like, the Jesus and Mary Chain biography because it was second-hand written. And obviously Alan McGee's looked as what was ghost-written, actually, do you know what I mean? As far as my book was the actual, the truth version, really, of what really happened around then, like, you know? Yes. So uh, how it formed was, actually, Jim Beatty was obviously the main man that really formed the band. It was his, he was a one-man band. It was him that started up Primal Scheme and then came out of the name as well. Then Bobby, it was actually then him and Bobby Gillespie came along. This might have been, but late 82, 83, because Bobby Gillespie was obviously in another band at the time, The Wake. Right. Oh, okay. You know? Yes. Basically, he was in the band, so he was a kind of one-man public image type sort of thrash sort of uh, band. Like, you know, then Bob G joined in. And then after that, I think the first single was meant to be actually the first release in Creation Records called The Orchard. But that was uh, Beatty's girlfriend at the time, Judith. But for some reason, I don't know who didn't like it, or if it was Bobby or Bob G, but I like it now, it's probably Bob G, because he ended up, obviously, Judith, after one vocal, get bombed out, and then Bob G was a vocalist all of a sudden, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I've heard the single, and it's actually not a bad single, and I can see it fitting in with the early creation records releases around the 83, but... That was it. It just then got totally scrubbed for some unbeknown reason. Only Jim Beatty could probably tell you that reason why he got scrubbed and delayed or whatever, like, you know. So uh, that's how it started up with those two characters, really, eh? Right. And then around, uh, obviously, I started, let's see, uh, Bobby Gillespie. My memories of him was probably meeting for the first time up at a Glasgow Apollo outside waiting for Susan the Banshees to appear. They were playing the Apollo 1979. This is late 1979. And uh, that particular gig was actually postponed that day or cancelled. It was probably cancelled, actually. Because the night before, Susan the Banshees went to Aberdeen and split up. John McGee and... Jo- uh, who was it? John McGee. John McKay and Kenny... Who was it? God, was it Kenny? Kenny Morris and John McKay actually split from the Banshees and that's how I first got started talking to Bobby Gillespie up there and then we kind of just went down to the local record shop bought a few letters and that was it 
seen the guy then in the wake a couple of times supporting the order and things like that. And uh, my pal, he was probably more into the kind of facts in the order since he'd been like, speaking to him, like, you know. Then I'd see BT at the gig as well. But then around maybe 83, summer of 83, I was uh, I was hanging my mate Doogie was just saying, oh, Bobby Gillespie, man, I'm bumping into him going to work every day. And he's like, yeah, he seems to be into the same kind of crap music. You're into right now, that 60s psychedelic pish. And I was like, all right. I said, I'd like to meet him again for a wee chat, you know. So that was it. Me and Bob G got together. And then we ended up going to Beaties. And then we are just around then, we will just starting to get into, you know, Sid Barrett and Love and the Birds and Chocolate Watch Band and things like that, you know. Yeah. So uh, then we would uh, start going to record fairs and start buying up all the LPs and reissues and everything. So Beatty's House is probably the main hub at the time. Late 1983, 84, forgetting the music. And it was then Beatty and Bob G started writing songs as well. And obviously by then they were heavily influenced by the Birds. It was probably the one band that everyone dug and everyone liked the sound off. And so then that was it. Beatty got a 12 string guitar and a lot of the songs were quite birdsy and sort of Jim McGrinley, if you can hear that kind of early twang, jingle jangle thing, you know. Yes. That's how it all got together. Then Robert Young, he knew Bobby Gillespie as well. He went to school with him in King's Park, so he was a bass player at the time and I joined as well. And Tam McGurk was a train, I think he was working for the British Rail at the time. He just joined in drums. So that was that. It was like the five of us around early 1984 all got together, then started rehearsing. And uh, that was it. We ended up rehearsing a set for the 1984 first ever gig as a five-piece. Uh, let's see, that was in the venue. That was the one where the Jews and the Mary Chain were just sort of bubbling under as well. I think he'd just signed the Creation Records at the time, you know, and they might have just released up, Upside Down at the time, maybe, I. So we all played, it was that infamous bill, it was like five bands on the bill, it was like She's in the Mary Chain, Primal Scream, Meat Whiplash, Oka Five and Al McGee's band, Biff Bang Pow. I still get a post on my music room here, as you can see, you know. <laughs> so uh, that was the first gig of the five-piece Primal Scream, and it felt really good. And uh, I think at the time, obviously, I just joined, I wasn't really musically made, I mean, I love my music, love my records, but to tell you the truth, I'd rather play records and actually, as in spin them and actually be in a band really and playing music. It's not really my thing really, you know, but uh, I thought I'll go along with this. Like that. You look your part, you can shake a tambourine and shake those maracas. Do you want to join the band? I was like, yeah, it sounds great. Let's go for it. So that was that. I just joined the band really. Eh? Excellent. You could have in really. Eh? It's kind of one of those things is like, oh, you want to do that? It was no great big plan or anything like that. It was just mates hanging about you know, getting into the same kind of music and then just sort of joining the band, really, that was it, in 1984. 1984. So the, the, the sort of the, the indie sound was starting to develop and obviously John Peel had become the sort of the great gate, the great gatekeeper in a lot of ways of sort of us sort of knowing what was going on because he would play yeah. it and obviously the NME... And I don't probably... think John Peel actually liked us. I think he just played it. <laughs> I heard that John Peel didn't even like early Primal Scream to tell you the truth right. I think there was a lot of that going on like you know just like yeah John this is the latest one okay I'll just play it to the hip sort of thing you know with John Peel I think he didn't really like all every record he played really you know yes well it's that's, 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 that's the vibe I got and that's what Alan McGee member tell me at the time like you know he said that's a hard sell because he doesn't like early Primal Scream I was like alright I remember that at the time but we ended up doing a session in 1985. I mean, a, a couple of really good 
think there's two John Peel sessions and a Janice Long session. So, yes, you're obviously getting a lot of kind of important airplay. And obviously... Yeah, that was it. And fanzines as well were quite important around that time, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. did it take a while to get the sound together? And also, you know, you, you know, the first single that you... Well, not the first single, but the inclusion on the NME C86 cassette was obviously... Yeah. it. I know that I think um, the members of the band sort of didn't want to be part of that whole indie scene and certainly yeah. Alan, Alan McGee hated the C86 kind of thing, didn't he? But yeah. it must have been kind of important because they sold about 22,000 copies of this cassette, didn't they? And it became That's kind bizarre, of the... the, the, the NME is quite a popular paper at the time, isn't it? Oh, it was selling 100,000... It was 100,000 copies of the yeah. paper each week. So, um, And this cassette also was the most popular as well. Aye, it's true. I, I mean, they always gave away freebie flexi discs and things like that, didn't they? Gave away a Clash one. Was it Capital Radio? Was a flexi disc as well, 1977? Yes, they So we were always them. giving away freebies, as you say. Cassettes were quite big in the 80s. They were quite good for... Every, I mean, everyone had a cassette player at the time, didn't they? Made up tapes, played tapes and things like that. You know, it's really good. Yes. Yeah, but uh, I, me- I remember making that single, actually, Velocity Girl. It's actually in Shorlands in Glasgow. The B- I actually remember the B-side, which was Velocity Girl, and uh, on the 12-inch, obviously the A-side was Crystal Crescent, and I got made in a studio in St John's Wood at the time, but I got kind of overproduced, really. I didn't really particularly like that song. I always did prefer the, the two B-sides, Velocity Girl and the Spirit X instrumental. It was on the 12-inch, that was like mostly B-E's instrumental sort yes. of a uh, song really you know because uh, they were the two definitely best songs on it eh? because you know that original lineup didn't last long did it because within a sort of before the end of the decade you know yeah. you'd already lost bt left didn't he and also uh, Tom well in 1985 paul hart joined in guitar as well and rhythm guitar right and also so, and you also you had Stuart, Stuart May as well, didn't you? He well? came after it in 1986, yeah, Vibrat, Stuart May, Aka Vibrat, yeah. I'm saying Paul Hart joined in Rhythm at the start of 1985, he then quit by the end of 85, and then Stuart May came in in the start of 1986. Right. And I think he joined up until, uh, let's see, 86, God, I think he was all in a band for about nine months, maybe that was it, when he got the sack along with Tam, eh? That's right, yeah. Yes. So obviously, you know, you, you have this kind of great period where the early years, the stage one yeah. of, of prime, Primal Scream, because having done this show quite a lot, you know, a lot of this, these interviews, most bands, well, the 80s indie bands have a sort of huh? five-year five year narrative. They get together, they do a single, possibly. Yep. If John Peel plays it, you know, it gives them that next step up and a John Peel session huh? kind of gives them another big step and then the album comes. And then it's often a bit tricky after that. And if any band... Tours America, it seems to completely finish them off. And the second album is kind of do or die, and mostly it's kind of die. So, but yeah. you, you know, you sort of, well, the band has kept going, obviously, but your, your sort of time with them only lasted yeah. till, was it 87? 87, it was all over, mate, three years, yeah. I drifted in and I drifted out. Yes. It was no fun anymore, really, I, you know. I like to have fun with my rock and roll, you know. And uh, when the bad vibes set in, and uh, it was just, Turned kind of nasty, really. I mean, a couple of people get fired to actually liked in the band, you know, and they just get fired for crap reasons, basically, you know. It's all politics, really, you know, and people not getting on with each other, you know. So uh, when that happened, 
that was it. Basically, I think my card was marked, really, and I just left the band in summer 87, really. Eh? You know, class yes. of personalities, mate. You know, when you fling six people together in one band, things are going to spark off. They really are, you know? Yes, well, there is that. When I um, left in 87, when Beatty left a year later, I'm thinking, God, it must be pretty bad if you're actually leaving your own band, you know? <laughs> That's how bad it was, you know? Yes. He started up the band when he left his own band. That, that's quite unusual. I don't think. I'll yeah, I think it's that. a bit strange, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It is you a bit know? strange. So look, so so with 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 your time that you had with the band in those yeah. kind of early years, obviously a lot of things must have changed, and there was also the relation with um, Alan McGee as well. So what was the sort of dynamic that that altered so drastically? Because because it was it a combination of egos, or was it egos, drugs, and drink as well? Oh, definitely egos. Yeah, probably Bobby Gillespie's ego had really flown because. Uh, He'd obviously joined the G's and the Mary chain around uh, tail end in nineteen eighty four as well. So he was in that band as well. You know, he was leading another kind of different rock and roll lifestyle, hanging out with these two guys. You know, well, it's mostly his best pal was Douglas Hart. To tell you the truth, Jim and William were really hard going to get along with. To tell you the truth, (laughs) you know, I didn't really get along with those two guys, but I did like Douglas. He was good fun, like you know, down to earth character. But other two, mm, bit of cavemen. You know, <laughs> not really social animals, really, shall we say, you know? Yes. So, well, it, uh, it sounds quite aye. grim, actually. So, because cause obviously, you know, being in a band, you know, from an outsider's, yeah. you know, from a fan's point of view, it always looks like it's kind of fun and you're part of a gang. Yeah. And, you know, you always think that everyone must be having a good time. So was yeah. it, did the band break down quite quickly until it sort of obviously became much more to do with just Bobby Gillespie having the ultimate, I don't know, card? I really don't know, mate. It's quite a hard one to pin on, because all of a sudden we're, like, getting into the groove, a jingle jangle groove, you know, playing to good crowds. You know, the live reaction was good, but behind the scenes, obviously, things were happening, you know. Maybe think decisions were getting made, you know, with Bobby Gillespie and Alan McGee. That's how they fired the drummer and the, obviously, rhythm guitar player. And after that, things started really to go downhill, the original lineup, You know, it's only me, then Beatty, Robert Young... And obviously Bobby Gillespie. Then Beatty left a year later, so then it just ended up Bobby Gillespie and Robert Young. And look what happened to Robert Young, you know? Yes. He just went on a spiral of drugs and destruction, really, because he was uh, quite naive and young and easily led. I think, you know, especially and, by Bobby Gillespie. And you must have been kind of shocked when he, you know, the the state that he got into. I know, it was horrible, man. It really was. I think. Therefore, by the grace of God, I thought, that could have been me. I could have been that guy as well. That maybe if I'd just buttoned my lip and just stuck with the band, you know, I could have been that rock and roll casualty as well. You don't really know how things would have turned out. Yes. And it's weird because... Yeah, no, it's cause... quite sad, actually. Eh? Oh, it's incredibly sad. Because some people yeah. are, seem quite resilient and tough who have, yeah. survi- who have survived rock and roll. And some people yeah. just don't seem to have had, got that something that stops them sort of self, self-destructing. So was it the case Aye. that sort of people like Bobby Gillespie had that absolutely kind of... Probably. He's more of an observer, really, than a doer, to tell you the truth, you know? Right. Yeah, for me, we're all sort of like in the eye of a hurricane, like... Uh, you know, Bobby Gillespie was more like kind of standing there watching it all, really, you know, observing. Not really taking part, really, you know. <laughs> yes, which is kind of... Um, because the other thing that was quite big for a lot uh-huh. of bands during this period that I found, or come to realise, is that being able to sort of be unemployed for a couple of years while making yeah. music was quite essential. And most a lot of people were also on this enterprise allowance scheme, yeah. which also meant that you could, you know... 
be, kind of be self-employed and you know put down that you're a musician for a year which gives people that opportunity to to just focus 100% on being in a band huh? did, did kind of the unemployed um kind of years and you know i have no idea were they important huh? you know were the band mostly unemployed and did that sort of create i think we were all unemployed every single one of us i eh? right <laughs> I think that... we, let's see, because I got made redundant in 1983. Bobby Gillespie left his printers probably in 84. Beatty was a trainee architect. He'd left that in 84. Tam had chucked his train driving job, and I don't know if Robert was working at the time. So either all the jobs would get made redundant or one was unemployed. But all of a sudden, by, I would say, till end of 84 and 85, we were all unemployed. <laughs> yes, they were all mostly focusing then on primal screen, really. Eh? Yeah, you know. And did it? I'd been in a band playing gigs, making music. That took up a lot of time, actually. And then, obviously, back in Glasgow, we ended up running this club as well. We ended up being involved in that Splash One club, you know. Right. So that was quite so, a scene as well. Did you sort of uh, get? Did you get to sort of tour the uh, the UK when you were part of the band? It was mostly yeah, England and Scotland. Yeah, I must admit, I never really. Probably played England a lot more than Scotland, to tell you the truth. Eh? But, I mean, probably the main places in Scotland were Glasgow and we had a big following in Greenock and Gourock area. But in the Clyde district were quite big creation records, uh, Primal Screen fans, and they were heavily into music as well. So we used to run our own weekend at Indie Club as well. Like, there was a big music scene over there, you know. And did and, uh, you... And were you aware of the sort of other scenes going on? Because there was obviously, you know, especially in Scotland, you had bands like the the Shop Assistants and the the Orchids oh, and, yeah. and the Jasmine Mix. I used to play gigs with them, yeah, in the Pastels, Shop Assistants, and then obviously through the Splash One Club, you'd up and coming bands like, you know, uh, Soup Dragons, you know, Mackenzie's, who else played it? Soup Dragons, Mackenzie's, BMX Bandits. All these bands are all just kind of coming along as well, like around, around, sort of riding on the wave of it, like you know. Yes. Yeah. And when you and did you know it was coming that you were sort of going to um, quit the band in '87? Well, I could feel that tensions building up, really. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think this isn't for me anymore. And I just sort of said, "Am I ever going to get out here, my brain in one piece, or it's all going to come crashing down?" You know, I around me, like, you know, so I just decided to jump the train and split back to Glasgow, my sanity. Right. And, yeah. did you, and you know, when you... And obviously, you know, with the passing of time, people change a bit and things kind of yeah. alter. Did Have you sort of had much contact with the, the kind of members, the, 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 the ones at the time and also some of the, the ones that have uh, come into the band? Zero contact with Bobby Gillespie. I bumped into McGee a few times over the years. Yep, I talked to him. Yeah, it's okay. I think it's kind of made up, me and McGee, really. Eh? You know, we just sort of talk and uh, how we bump into each other and like, you know, but I've never ever came across Bobby Gillespie, to tell you the truth. Yes. Be- I, Jim Beatty, I've came across, uh, yeah, a few times, but I've not seen him for a few years and all like, you know. Yes. Yeah. Robert Young, I've never seen at all when he moved away to Brighton or London. That was the end of Robert, really, eh? Yeah. You know, so uh, yeah, it's quite sad. Because cause this year there's been that big exhibition, you know, Scotland, which was put together by, I think it was Vic Galloway, wasn't it? Rip it up. I rip it up, yeah, that's right, yeah. So did you sort of feel that you were, you you'd sort of had a part to play in the sort of Scottish music scene that dates back decades with people like the Incredible String Band to the Skids, the Bay City Rollers, and obviously, uh-huh. you know, the, the, the indie scene of Jesus and the Mary Chain and Primal Scream? 
it's funny look, looking at that exhibition. I think the one band that probably we looked like and maybe sounded like it was probably the poets from Glasgow. Don't we know them, the poets? No. Right, but a 1960s got a bit you can call them garage. It's sort of like freak beat pop band, aye, from yes. Glasgow. And if you look at a photograph, obviously we dressed like in a Rabbi Burns outfit at the time, kind of dandy jackets and frilly blouses, you know. But if you get a hold of the poets, it's got they've got a CD out of all their records. They've done about had about six singles out. If you get their CD with our records, they've also got the B sides on them. You'll soon see. I mean, we don't sound like the poets, but looking back, God, someone says, "By God, you just look like the poets." And I was looking at a picture, thinking. Because we do look like the poets, that's bizarre, man, I, You know, not even, I think we even knew who the poets were in 1984. It was all about 1985 and 86, they kind of cropped up in compilations in Bam Caruso when I seen a photo of that. God, never realised this band existed in Glasgow. This kind of freak beat pop band, the poets. You know, so that was the one band that I always sort of relate to. Yes, well, that's, yeah. yes, I think it's, I was, when you mentioned that, I think I was getting confused with the, I think it's the Lost Poets, which were probably a New York. All oh, right, huh? Rap yeah. or poet. The last points, weren't I? The last points, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because, the last points, uh, because a lot of your yeah. image, you know, had that Andy Warhol kind of vibe to it, didn't it? It's sort of the black kind of look and the shades. Yeah, a kind of Gary's uh, look as well, 1960s Gary's band look, and, yeah. And the silver foiled sort of, spa- you know, backdrops as well. So was was all that, were you all kind of obsessed with that kind of New York 60s scene rather than the... I would say probably me, Bobby and... Beatty were probably, uh, you know, definitely more obsessed than, say, Tam and Robert, probably, you know, I definitely, maybe we're all more kind of hardcore music lovers and into that kind of 1960s groove, really, yeah, definitely. And when you... Um... Especially the Velvet Underground, because uh, Paul Hart was in the band for a year, he was a big Velvet Sex Pistols freak, you know, so we uh, used to pick up a lot of bootlegs and things like that, and, uh, yeah, we were right into the Andy Warhol factory scene at the time, yeah, definitely, yeah. And you, you know, you obviously put this amazing book together, which is, you know, as as kind of because there's a lot of books on, you know, written by musicians and, yeah. and and stuff can sort of become and go. But you know, this is incredibly detailed and and sort of like full of interests and facts and information. Did that feel was that a project that you had been thinking I really want to do for years, or was it something that came along kind of quite by surprise and you just kind of got into a creative splurge? I would say. Let's see, when I left the band in 87, I probably started to write it in 1997. Yeah, quite a while ago, actually, yeah. Yes. And I started in about 30 pages, and I thought, I got bored with it, you know. <laughs> but I wrote down all the interesting things. I thought, I'll maybe come back to this one day. And that was it. It happened about four or five years ago. I was just talking to someone in the pub, and we were talking about the tales of creation and primal scheme. They think, someone's like, you should write a bloody book. Man, you've got some amazing stories. I says, eh. Uh, you sound more real than Alan McGee's and G's and the Medicines. I says, I know. Well, this is what really happened, you know. So that was it. Then I just started doing a bit of research from that time. Luckily, I kept a lot of diaries from around that time. And I've got collage books, you know. I've kept a lot of music memorabilia from Primal Scheme. So it all kind of came together. Spoke to a few people. Got all the memories together. And that was it. Yes. Composed a wee book, really. I managed to get a book. I could probably do a part two, to tell you the truth. Because there's even more stories to come as well, like, you know. Yes. So uh, you never know in the future, it might be a part two. <laughs> and do you know how it sort of got received by, you know, other pe- you know, people who were included in the book? 
Like Anna McGee or Bobby Bobby Gillespie. Haven't they got a clue? I don't think McGee's even knows about it or Bobby Gillespie I think Bobby Gillespie knows about it, you know, but obviously I don't know how he'd feel about it, you know. Obviously Alan McGee, I don't know, I've not heard any feedback for him, you know. Yeah, because obviously, yeah. you know, the stories are quite extraordinary, aren't they? And sort of probably most people think, oh boy, at least they didn't, you Aye. know, at least it wasn't recorded on sort of social media. But but again, you know, <laughs> it, it, it sounded like there was quite a lot of, um, yeah, rock and roll, really, I suppose. Oh, that's yeah, a, definitely, ah, yeah. You know. A lot of shenanigans going down in that band, yeah. There's a lot of bands, and I think probably the most exciting times in a band is the early days. Yes. Because <laughs> you're hungry, you're hungry, you really are, you know. You've not got a lot of money, but what you've got, you just spend on closing records and going out and having a good time. And it all seems to happen around then. Things after that get really silly, actually, to tell you the truth. <laughs> well, I guess but I think the early days are great. First couple of years, I love reading about the early days of the Beatles, the early days of the Rolling Stones, you know. Those hungry, starving years, just getting bands together. And peace in the music. I think that's always the uh, most important times, really. Character forming years, I call it. Yes. Yeah. And then what happens, you know, when when you you know you do your sort of not quite, but you know, have a similar Ziggy Stardust moment and say this is the end. You know, obviously, you know that's that's quite a chapter of your life. What was yeah. what was it like the so the next phase when you realised that you were no longer in a, in the band and tell you the truth, it was like a divorce. It really, it did hit us hard for about a year, definitely. Didn't really do a lot for a year. Yeah, I just sort of stayed in the house and hung out with a girlfriend at the time. Like, we just travelled about, really, eh? Until, yeah. uh, you know, it cleared my head, really. And that was it. It did take about a year. Because it was a big part of your life, really, spending three years with five guys in the back of a van sharing the same bed and things like that, you know? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange feeling, me. I don't know if you've been in a band, you know? But uh, if you've been in a band for three years, it's quite a... Uh, it's a lot happening there, really, isn't that? Three years, definitely. Well, absolutely. And I and yeah. I could imagine, was there a time when you just didn't want to even think or mention the band and what your connection had been with them? Uh, probably, aye, yeah, definitely, aye. I was just, like, sick to death, the whole thing, to tell you the truth, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, aye, and then it was just like, what was it, it went down that kind of different kind of road musically as well, which I thought was pretty crap, to tell you the truth, that kind of... Fake kind of MC5 kind of rock vibe. It was just total crap. That second LP. I don't know what it was called. It was that bad. Yeah. You know, but then they found a groove of Screamadelica, really, you know. And did that yeah. completely amaze you when they sort of hit that sort of. Oh, I. I thought they were finished. I thought, these guys are chancellors. They're finished now. Then along came this single. I was like, holy shit, where did that come from? You know, and all of a sudden it was out of everybody car radio in town. <laughs> Yes, huh? and that was yeah. Strange I mean, strange feeling. That. It was a really strange feeling, I because it was just like a totally different band and different sound. It really was. It had uh, nothing to do with Primal Scheme at all. The early days. It was just as if it was two different bands. Yeah. Yes, and it is. Yeah. And is it amazing to still see the band are you know have are still a sort of entity, aren't they? They're still five nah. members. So I mean, having survived over thirty years, isn't it? Yeah. God, it's not going to be But it's been 1984, when was that? 16, God, it must have been enough 35 years. 35 years. Since Bobby Gillespie and Beatty started up that band, wasn't it really? To tell you the truth, was it? Uh, 1983, yeah, yeah, near enough 30, is it? 35 years. 17 and 18 is about 35 years. Yep, that's how long Primal Screen have been together. I'm surprised myself 
how long he's managed to keep it going, to tell you the truth. Yes. Yeah, but I suppose that's his life and that's it, isn't it, really? I guess you it know? is. It's no plan yeah. B. I mean, did you ever sort of see any of the royalties or was it just the case that um, that was Nothing it? at all, mate. Absolute nana, no, nothing. Because <laughs> uh, everything... It was really badly run, to tell you the truth, creation writers and Alan McGee. I mean, everyone was all basically winging it. You know, none of us had any experience in the music business at all, really, you know, including Alan McGee. Everyone was just winging it. And, by God, there's just loads of money getting wasted right, left and centre, to tell you the truth. Bad planning. Yes. You know, it really was. It's terrible. Even when they signed to that major record label, there was a Blanco Negra, Care of Warner Records. All the money just got... Ate up in a really diabolical abortion of an LP, really, you know. <laughs> and everyone's wages went into the second LP, and by that time I was getting really scurred, you know. And I'm thinking, I'm not seeing nothing here. It's just like, you're better back in the door again, really, you know. Yes. It was terrible, eh? It was really bad management, it really was, you know. Well, I know. Terrible. I spoke to a few people, and actually the most famous one is is Les, who was in the Bass City Rollers. He were huge, uh, and uh, he was also uh, the front man. And they never, yeah. he never saw a penny, did he? And then when he I left know. the band, he had nothing, yeah. which was kind of yep. one of the saddest stories in music. That's that, aye. Which is kind of quite... have you ever have you ever read their biography? I've only watched documentaries of them. And by uh, God, mate, read the biography of the Bass City Rollers. It'll blow your mind. Yes, yeah, so I think I think it's probably quite grim, isn't it? It is, it is grim, but it's actually, it's ridiculous as well at the same time. It's grim, but ridiculous. You know, some of the stories, you're thinking, how did those guys survive that? I'm still amazed that they're even living. Yes. Les McCune, Rudy, Eric Longmore, what they survived. Just the whole rock and roll trip, plus the abuse of Tam Payton, and obviously getting ripped off and everything. It's just like, it's probably the biggest scam ever. Yeah, in rock and roll history, I've ever read, must not it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, that sort of. Because they were really million dollar sellers worldwide at one point to be city rollers, you know. Yes, well, I hadn't realised I hadn't realised they were big all over the world. I just thought it was the I UK, thought, yeah, yeah. but they were huge, literally uh, everywhere. So, and even America, yeah. so they must have made a billion and millions. That's a scary tale of rock and roll, definitely. Reading the bi- Bay City Rollers biography, it's probably the most scariest book I've ever read about yes. music. My life, it really is. I know, the, yeah. it was so abusive. So anyway, look, what would you, I mean, after sort of that, this kind of period and obviously doing this incredible book from it, I mean, what would you sort of say to an 18-year-old self, you know, that, that was sort of standing there, sort of about to sort of enter into the... What, interest? right now? Well, I suppose just what advice you've picked up and, you know, obviously you've, yeah. you've, you've lived a bit of it and then you've reflected on it and then you've written uh-huh. a book. You know, what would you say to a... You know, if someone said to you, you know, what are the key bits? Because obviously there's kind of things you think, God, I wish I'd known that. And I know. And I just wondered which were the kind of key lessons that you've you would you've got and what you would sort of give to somebody without boring them with old, you know, like being an old. Well, fan. that is that. I suppose you live and learn with your mistakes as well, didn't you? Really, I suppose everyone's got to get through that themselves. Really, you know, but. Uh, it's a tricky one to tell someone, isn't it, really? Because you could tell someone, they'll just say, I piss off, mate, you know? <laughs> I'll do it my own way, really, you know? Yeah. Because uh, it's all different now, really, isn't it? It's a different world, really. It's then, diff- back then, it was uh, word of mouth, fanzines, you know, uh, individual promoters, really. But now a lot of it is social media-led. bit more PC as well, really. You wouldn't get a lot. You wouldn't get away with half of those crazy shenanigans, you know? Plus, it was quite a lot of 
druggy behaviour going on back then. I don't know how druggy the music scene is now. You know, I don't know if it's clean cut or what, really, you know. It's a, it's a different time, really, isn't it, aye, altogether. But yeah. the advice is, you know, now is the time, if you're 18, if you want to do something, go out there and do it. But obviously, if I was 18 right now, I'd probably be involved in the electronics scene, to tell you the truth. Yes. And also... You know, I'll be involved in the truth. underground electronics scene gives me more of an exciting buzz than anything to tell you the truth over the last... 20-odd years, yeah. Yeah, because I know quite a few people have different ones, like, you know, practice more, rehearse more, take it more seriously, or try to enjoy it as well, because I think a lot of people, when they were starting out, are sort of feeling a bit angst-ridden and um, and not particularly enjoying it. So it's kind of, you know... I think the early days are the best. I think really the early days are the best, because it's more fun you getting together and trying to achieve something and meeting people and, you know, getting that buzz of plenty of crowds and travelling about and... You know, that's the crazy times. That's the ones you're going to remember, really, I think, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. Definitely, yeah. Well, yeah. it's also quite interesting because also, you know, I sort of hadn't appreciated it, but there was that kind of, there was a more of a circuit back in the 80s, you know, the gig yeah. circuit that yeah, people could tap into, you know, from Glasgow to Manchester, Leeds, down to, you know, and, Nor- yep, uh. and Norwich also had a little kind of place that, you know, 200 people would probably turn up to most yep. indie nights. And, nah. you know, so you could get... Every town did have an indie club. It's quite strange to think. Uh, you wouldn't think that, but... We went to, I mean, we did end up some strange places like the Barwon Furnace Football Social Club. <laughs> I don't know how much of an indie scene was going on in Barwon Furnace, but there you go, about 100 people turned up, you know. Strange. Yes, well, it's, it's yeah. interesting because I think that's kind of something that's really gone, you know, because I've spoken yeah. to quite a few people and, and yeah. quite a few, you know, a few of the musicians and, and uh, yep. folk are still trying to make music but they say yeah. you know things have really changed now you know there's absolutely zero yeah. money there's just you there isn't like you got the money and wasted it it's like there just is no money anymore so you I don't know. you can't yeah. you you know you have to keep working and also there isn't the circuit you can't just tap, tap into that circuit and think well we'll play i don't know 10 gigs around the country and we'll probably get uh-huh. that about a hundred, two hundred people at most yeah. of those. You know, depending on what kind of whether you got in the NME or John Peel played you. But that's at least, that. at there's least, no the... NME, there's no John Peel anymore. See, yeah. as you said, you've mentioned two things there that were quite important and big back then: the music papers and the radio. Yeah. And obviously, fanzines. Do people still do fanzines? There, probably not. It's all online stuff, now, isn't it? Really, it's... vlogging and blogging, isn't it? Flocking, blogging, yeah. and putting it on Facebook. Yeah, but because <laughs> there was that, like uh, the square in Harlow, Essex, and I think that was another major place. And now that just got bulldozed right. and is a car park. So there isn't, yeah. you know, there isn't those kind of key places for people that, to to learn their their chops really. So um, right, true, right, it's a bit of a yeah. tricky one. So yeah, that is, isn't it? I for bands to hit that circuit, really, isn't it? Huh? Yeah, you're right. Huh? It is. And tri- how do you get a record label dealing with? I don't know if things even exist. I don't know. Yes, this is true. You know, do you do it? Yeah, it's just funny. It's a, it's a, it's a different ball game altogether, isn't it? It really is. No top top of the pops as well. Top 40 used to be quite a buzz, wasn't it? Eh? Yeah, well, there's also the... In- a good thing, yeah, yeah. Well, I was also obsessed with the indie charts, just reading the indie, you know, and sort yeah. of and being excited just because of a, a name of a band or a song. But just on on sort of on the last, and, and not cheerful, but quite depressing yeah. note, you know, when you, you know, when Rob died, you know, Rob uh-huh. Throb died. I mean, was it something that you kind of knew he was going to die or...? Well, we heard, we had heard rumours he had a really bad heroin addiction, like, you know, but it was a bit of a shock when it actually came 
he actually died through it, you know. I thought maybe he might have recovered, you know, to tell you the truth. It's like everyone you hope would recover, like, you know. But unfortunately, it must have been that bad he died, you know. Yes. And, is, and, was, it, and was it a moment that you went to the funeral or was that something that didn't happen? Well, obviously, I, was, I spoke to Tam. He was, a, you know, Thomas McGuck. He was a drummer in Primal School at the time. And Thomas was actually quite close to Robert and the band at the time. Both of them were quite close friends. They had kind of strange banter going on, like, you know. Like, so those two were really good pals, believe it or not, before uh, Tam got the bullet. I, said, I was quite surprised when Tam got the bullet. I think, God, Robert was actually Tam's pal, but no, he's actually behind him getting fired. I think there's no love lost here, like, you know. So, uh, But I actually spoke to Tam, the drummer, so I'm in contact with him, and we had a good old chin wag about it and we just sort of raised a glass to Robert, you know, in the good old days, you know, and said, oh well, mate. Yes. You know, that's, that's a price to pay for rock and roll, isn't it? You know, he just got in too deep, really, and that was the thing, he just couldn't get back. Yeah. And did you, yeah, and, did, sad, huh? and did you manage to steer your drug and drink um, potential addictions to... to that was to... it, yeah. I was more of a kind of acid head, to tell you the truth, you know. That just kind of phased out really in the late 80s, to tell you the truth, acid, you know. Yes. So uh, that was it. I just kind of... Uh, could probably get more into ecstasy after that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like everyone else, I suppose, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I yeah, probably not touched a drug for years now, to tell you the truth. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Leave that to the youngins, I know, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because Lemmy from Motorhead always was really anti-heroin. He was just... Because I think he lost so many friends and musicians aye. through it, so yeah. I think he was quite sort of... Uh, yeah. He, he was not... Back to the drink, yeah, I had rubbing corks, right? That's right, yeah. so he didn't of, He didn't even think about touching it at all, actually. I so so did true. you, I mean, just last question, did you then huh? sort of manage to sort of reinvent yourself and sort of get into a different world? Well, actually, ten years after I left Primal Scheme, I joined another band, it's a local band, I don't know if you've ever heard them, uh, called the Mount Vernon Arts Lab. No. That ring a bell? No. Well, they were... At the time, what was this, 1996, we were just discovering the BBC Radiophonic, getting the kind of Joe Meek kind of uh, analogue electronic sound, you know. So uh, it was me and this guy called Drew Mulholland, and uh, he was the main songwriter, and I just played live gigs with him and recorded it. It was uh, good fun. Totally different band. It was like bands like Broadcast, Stereo Lab. And Adent X were all starting up at the time in Sonic Boom, and we were really kind of part of that at the time. We sort of played gigs with them in the London and Glasgow area and St Andrews, you know? Yes. So it was good fun. Again, that lasted another three years, and that was it. It just fizzled out, floated in, floated out, and that was it. Well, that was my pop music career over again. That was it, 2000. So it was good fun. Yeah, totally different music altogether. Yes. And do you, yeah. and do you still have the tambourine? No, I still get a big custom-made white metal tambourine in my suitcase. Well, I've still got my tambourine case as well, which get custom-made. I still get that. My suicide. I got Bobby Gillespie uh, paint suicide on it in 1985. It's quite funny. It's still there with all the stickers on it, yep. Yes. I pull that out for my book readings now and again. I sometimes... I did do a few book readings around Scotland, you know, just to publicise the book and took the tambourine case and the tambourine along with it, you know. <laughs> it's <laughs> quite good fun, isn't it? <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, look, I've got quite a bit there, so that's yep. fantastic. And I'll tell you when 
I sort of put it out, you know, because I, right. d- I yep. do a different yep. one each week. So um, right. I'm just kind of slowly working through them. But look, this Have is... Have you recorded my voice here? Is my voice going to be on this programme now, is it? Yes. All <laughs> oh, right, I see, right. right. <laughs> yeah, so I sort of record yeah. and then they use bits of it. So that's brilliant. Right. So thank you ever so much. For... And as long as you've got everything out there with that, sorry, information, yeah. Yes, and like I said, I'll keep in touch and I will tell yep. you when I put this out and it will be fantastic. Okay. That's it, and I'll put it on to other people as well. I'll spread it on Facebook, like, you know. Cool, that is fantastic. Get a well, lot look, of people to tune in, yeah, definitely. Well, I, I, I seem to be going through an awful lot of Scottish bands. I've, the, only ones, <laughs> the only ones I haven't managed to track down are the shop assistants. And also All right, huh? the guy from 53rd and 3rd Records, um, Alan. Sandy. Sandy. Oh, who Not was Sandy McQueen? No, there was another guy. Who was the kind of odd chap? Who no postcard records? Alan Horn. Alan Horn. What happened? Oh, you'll never get him. He is just a scallop pimpernel. Yes. I don't think anyone's seen that guy for decades. No, I know that's the thing. Yeah. Alan Horn is. But you know Sandy McQueen that used to run twenty third and the third record records label. Do you know Sandy McQueen? No, because he runs a record shop in Glasgow called Love Music. Right. He's on Facebook. Oh. Maybe you should check him because he, if there's one guy in contact with the shop assistants, it probably will be Sandy McLean. Oh, I'll have a, I'll definitely have a look at that, yeah. actually. That would be Sandy nice. McLean, care of Love Music Glasgow. He'll be on, I'm sure, he's on Facebook, definitely, Sandy. He's an all right guy as well. He'll try and help you out, definitely, put you in the right direction. And maybe David, I think David pops up now and again for the shop assistants. What do you call him? David's second name. Yeah. I forget his second name. Yeah, he's the main guy. It still pops up now and again. So he is available somewhere, David. Ooh. It's just tracking him down, isn't it, really? Huh? God, it is. It is tracking him down. God, I'm obsessed yeah. with it. Anyway, look, this is magic. This huh? is, this, oh, yeah, and the strawberry, strawberry switchblade. Though. I don't know what's happened. Rose seems... Rose McDowell's on Facebook as well. Yeah, I see her. She's still doing occasional gigs, actually. Yeah, she's actually playing tonight. She's trying to get me along, but I'm actually going to see the Rosillos in Edinburgh. She's playing the wee red bar in Edinburgh as well, but I'm like, sorry, Rose... I'm booked for another gig, like, you know, so... Uh, When's that happening? It's happening tonight. Oh, blimey. Most the red bar in Edinburgh, yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah. Oh. It's all happening in Edinburgh tonight, mate, aye? <laughs> it is. Well, have a good night and see the Aye, well done, man. OK, yeah, well, look, really take care. Forward, man. And, well done, um, mate, aye? And I'll keep you in touch. OK. OK, mate, aye. Let us know when it's on the show. When will. will it be on, anyway? Is that another couple of weeks? Probably, yeah, probably a few more weeks, and that'll be... Okay, but I'll right. tell you, anyway. Anyway, thanks yep, a lot. No problem, mate. OK, thanks take, a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. OK, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye, mate. And that was my interview or casual chat with Martin St. John, the one-time member of Primal Scream. And as I said, has a book out which is titled The Psychedelic Confessions of a Primal Screamer, available probably best online, in fact. But anyway, thank you for listening. This has been David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. Also, all these shows have been podcast or archived, so you can find those on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean. Just check them out. It's all there. Anyway, stay safe. Have a good week.